Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode. It's a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. On today's episode, we're going to talk about two extraordinary individuals who earned medals of honor during the Civil War. First is the story of Mary Edwards Walker, the only woman to ever earn a medal of honor. Then there's the story of Thomas Ward Custer, younger brother to the famous George Custer of Custer's Last Stand fame. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. The Medal of Honor, the United States' highest award for valor, was established by the United States Army in 1862 to recognize those soldiers who distinguished themselves by gallantry and intrepidity in combat with an enemy of the United States. Since that time, 3,459 Medals of Honor have been awarded, and only one has gone to a woman, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker and hers is a story worth remembering. Mary Edwards Walker was born in 1832 in upstate New York, the youngest of seven children. Her parents were farmers and free thinkers. The free thought movement was a movement that challenged authority and tradition and thought that truth should be derived from logic and reason. And it was that upbringing that not only allowed her to escape traditional gender roles of her time, but to develop a fierce sense of independence and justice. Mary's parents were determined to give all of their children a good education, and she studied at Valley Seminary in Fulton, New York. She always had an interest in physiology and anatomy, and so she worked as a teacher in order to earn enough money to be able to attend medical school, graduating with honors from Syracuse Medical College in 1855, the only woman in her class. She struggled, though, to build a successful practice, as female doctors were very rare in that time and often not trusted. When the war started, she volunteered with the Union Army, seeking a commission as a field surgeon. But the Union Army didn't hire female surgeons, and so she was only allowed to serve as a nurse, which is how she served after the Battle of First Bull Run. She then started volunteering her services as a field surgeon and treated soldiers after the battles of Fredericksburg and Chickamauga. But finally, in 1863, she was hired as a contracting acting assistant surgeon, the first female surgeon in the Union Army, with the pay of a lieutenant, although she was still a civilian. She didn't much care about rules or the enemy lines. She would go where she needed to go to treat people, and she would frequently travel behind enemy lines to treat civilians in need, say to deliver a baby or treat someone that was sick. And that's what she was doing in April of 1864 when she was captured and arrested by the Confederate Army as a spy. She was held as a prisoner of war until August of that year when she was finally exchanged. She continued in federal service and was made acting assistant surgeon to Ohio's 52nd Infantry Regiment. She also managed a hospital for female prisoners and later managed an orphanage. She was recommended for the Medal of Honor by General William Tecumseh Sherman and General George Henry Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga. There's no 
record of the original nomination, but when the medal was awarded by President Andrew Johnson in 1865, it commended her because she dedicated herself with patriotic zeal to the sick and wounded soldiers, both in the field and in the hospital, to the detriment of her own health. She always said that she got the award because she was the only doctor brave enough to go behind enemy lines to treat people. Throughout her life, she showed the independent thought of her upbringing, and one of her great causes was dress reform. She believed that women's fashion of the day was injurious to health. She complained that corsets were restricting, and that large skirts with multiple petticoats were not only uncomfortable and restricting, but they also collected dust and dirt. She wrote two books on the subject of dress reform, complaining that women's fashion was not just dangerous to the health, but also expensive. She would often dress in a mid-length skirt and men's trousers, which she felt was much more practical and protected the woman's modesty. But later in life, she would often give speeches in full men's formal dress attire. She said, I don't wear men's clothes, I wear my own clothes. While she was passionate about that cause, it was one of many. She was also part of the temperance movement. She was an abolitionist, and she was a suffragette, and she testified before Congress several times on the issue of women's suffrage. In 1917, the Army did a review of their Medal of Honor roles and removed 911 names, including Mary Edwards Walker. The reason they revoked her medal was that she was actually a civilian at the time and that her deeds were not in combat but her medal was returned posthumously by Jimmy Carter in 1977. In her life, she had so many causes. For example, during the war, she realized that there were lots of women who were coming to Washington, D.C. to visit injured soldiers, brothers or husbands, and so she started a society to help women who were visiting the Capitol find a safe place to stay and to find their loved ones in all the many area hospitals. And after the war, she passionately advocated to provide pensions to Civil War nurses and argued that they should be given the right to vote in gratitude for their service. All her life, she had to struggle to make a living. She was never able to establish a successful medical practice because, sadly, in her time, people just did not trust female physicians. She finally passed away on the family farm in 1919 at the age of 86. Even in her time, she was more known for her eccentricities than her accomplishments, and she's largely forgotten today. And that is just wrong, because her accomplishments were astounding, especially with what she had to face in her day. And darn it, the, the only female winner of the Medal of Honor deserves to be remembered. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy about what we've just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about here on the podcast. Mary Edwards Walker was, she was really ahead of her time, and she was doing a lot of stuff that I think we associate with a much later period. It's impressive to me that even though she wasn't allowed to be a surgeon in the U.S. Army, at least at first, that she didn't like decide, oh, well, then it's beneath me to, you know, work as a nurse or anything like that. She's just, she prioritized helping. And so she's like, well, I'm going to help. And I would like to be a surgeon. I'd like to use my skills to help. But if they're going to make me be a nurse, well, at least I'm helping. And it's, it seems to me that that's, that's pretty illustrative of her character. You know, it's, she was relentless, but yeah, she and uh, she was working a long time without clear pay, and she, I mean, she just, she wanted to help. So, I mean, part of the issue was that as a female doctor, she was having trouble with private practice. 
But the issue really was that this war was going on and she wanted to contribute because she believed in the cause and because she saw the suffering and she wanted to alleviate it. And so in many ways, she was an extremely brave individual because a lot of people would have simply walked away when they were being rejected. And instead, she was persistent. And you know, like I said, at the start, she wasn't even getting paid. She was you know, essentially a nurse, but she was still treating these soldiers. Uh, and it's nearly as we can tell, treating them quite well. And she wasn't just ahead of her time in terms of female doctors, but when you look at her in retrospect, her practice of medicine was far ahead of most of her colleagues at the time, uh, which was another part of the reason why she wasn't well accepted is because you know, it was a sort of system where they didn't like a challenge from someone. She clearly was a compassionate person who simply wanted to help uh, in any way that she could. And you know, that's, there's every reason to respect that. She just kind of exudes this this energy of I'm going to do what I want. She has to work within the system that she's given. So, but she the she was even able to eventually be accepted as a as a surgeon, right? And she was even paid. Well, she was she was never officially, officially. an army surgeon. That that would come back later uh, because the army surgical corps simply would not accept her. There's stories about that, but it's how she went into some sort of meeting uh, and they ask her questions. Uh, and uh, it was clearly set up to fail. They were not going to believe whatever she did. Yeah. Uh, and essentially, they said that she would only be useful in childbirth. Uh, and so she 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 was not able to actually Ouch. get a commission in the army, which is which is interesting. Uh, but uh, she still was able to essentially go perform as a surgeon because she had officers, high ranking officers, uh, who had seen her work and who respected her and, and who allowed her to be in that position. And so they recognized they recognized the skill, and she was persistent yeah. enough yeah, to that, make that's sure. That's how she she operated as as assistant surgeon for the Illinois regiment that she did is, is because she had that support. But she was never actually uh, she was only ever a civilian contractor. She was never actually able to enter the Army Medical Corps. And honestly, she afterwards sought after the war. She sought a commission in the Army Medical Corps, uh, and the Army Medical Corps was just against it. So despite the fact that she had high level people supporting her. Uh, Lincoln knew that he could not go against the officer corps. Uh, you know, this immediately before, you know, before Lincoln was killed, but, uh, that he couldn't go against the officer corps, the, the medical corps, in terms of appointing. And, and the reason, really, that she was given a medal of honor, which there were no standards for the medal at the time, the reason she was giving it is that he said, well, I can't really give her a commission in the army like she like she wants, but we can give her this medal. And that's, that's how she got them. So the, the medal wasn't given for some particular act of bravery. It was really given because, you know, they, they, that was the only way they could really recognize her at the time. Yeah, recognize any of the service she'd done since she wasn't yeah. going to be able to get any other kind of recognition. And that's that's interesting. And it's, I, it's reflective of uh, many women's yeah. struggles trying to be recognized is, for their that, services. That, almost, that, that receiving a medal of honor was almost an insult. I mean, it was almost like I'm dissing you. I can't give you a job, so I, you know, here, you know, walk away with this. Play Kate, yeah. and then and then later come back and take it back. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. She. So I mean, she was uh, she was a brave person who did things because she had compassion. She apparently did them well, uh, and she deserved respect. And she had to fight for that respect because of the time. And that's that's really you know all, all stuff that's worth talking, as well as just an interesting life with the things that she did. I mean, as a historical figure, it is just interesting. Uh, that someone, you know, was in the middle of so many things that she was uh, and did that when no one else thought that she should be there. Uh, and, you know, the question, you know, still, was she was she working as a spy for Pinkerton? I mean, like she claimed, we, we really don't know. What we do know is that she was willing to go into the parts of the country that were where the lines were fuzzy, where she could get captured 
uh, in order to treat civilians who were in need of medical care. And the other doctors weren't willing to do that. And, you know, whether she was doing that on behalf of Pinkerton, where she thought it was, a, you know, the, being a doctor could be an excuse for her to, you know, survey the troops, or whether she did that just because she thought people shouldn't go without medical care just because there's a war going on. Uh, either way, that, you know, Marxer is a very brave person. And someone, I mean, I, I've never done anything that brave. I've never risked myself that others might live in the way that she did. It's certainly brave because you're right. I mean, whatever the, whatever her... Uh, reasons were and whatever her actual her goals were when she was going out there it's certainly admirable to say just going over there to to help people who are not getting medical care i mean that's incredible mm -hmm. but it's also incredible to think that she decided well i'm going to go be a spy also because either way she was probably going to be suspected as a spy and she was and yeah. I, she well, she had to be she aware was, yeah, and she was yeah of of the risk yeah well i mean I, anybody that was crossing those lines knew that there that there was a risk yeah but uh, i mean but you can see if you understand pinkerton you can see why you know he would he might be interested in that because he yeah. she is someone that he knows is going through those lines and is someone that is talking to the local population and therefore someone who had you know a a better ability to understand say you know strength of the enemy than almost anybody so yeah, he uh, was know, smart. it's hard to say, you know, what, you know, what they expected if she was captured. Uh, but, uh, you know, she, he clearly, you know, this is someone he could recognize as being value to that union cause. And so it's not at all inconceivable that she was straight up working for Pinkerton. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, we don't really have a very clear record of that. But I mean, you know, Pinkerton, because you know, we did another episode on Kate Warren. I mean, yeah. Pinkerton, you know, was able to see uh, the, the, the utility of a woman in war simply because the, the, the sensibilities at the time didn't imagine that a woman was a combatant and a threat. Yeah. And so they could get away with things that men couldn't. And I think he recognized talent, too. I think, you know, both Kate Warren and oh, yeah. uh, Mary Edwards Walker here were made of some pretty incredible stuff. They weren't. And I think that was I think that's something that Pinkerton got right, was that he was able to find people mm -hmm. who and look past his own prejudices uh, to say that they're, they're worth having because of what they're able to accomplish, which clearly, did, I mean, for, I mean, there's a lot of criticism of Pinkerton and we haven't done one specifically on Pinkerton. He did, and you know, a lot of that is very fair criticism. Yeah. yeah. I mean, both in terms of the, the quality of his intelligence and the, and the way that he did things. Uh, and even afterwards too, but, uh, but certainly he recruited some incredible spies and yeah. it, it wouldn't be a shock to me if that included Mary Edwards Walker, because she was, she would have been a good chance for an intelligence officer. I mean, she simply could have provided him with things that he might not be able to get. Uh, and end up, you know, because of that, ends up becoming a prisoner of war in a way that, I mean, she almost died in the camp. I yeah. mean, if they had an exchange route, then she didn't think she was going to survive. Yeah. And despite her uh, getting that Medal of Honor taken away and then very posthumously returned, <laughs> um, yeah. she was well after, well after she could appreciate it. Well, she, you know, the funny thing, she, she wore it her whole life. When they took the medal away, she's like, I don't, I don't recognize that. I'm going to keep wearing my medal. Uh, and there were others that did that too. And the yeah. Miles Commission is interesting. And I think, you know, the Miles Commission was was fair. I mean, there were, there yeah. were uh, the medals that were taken away were mostly medals that really never should have been. I mean, there was literally a guy who was captain who wrote in and said, you know, I hear you have some sort of medal. I had fun in the war. Can you send me a medal? Uh, and they sent him a medal. Oh. <laughs> and there were, uh, there were some almost 300 people of a main regiment. Uh, when uh, Gettysburg is going on, all, they're trying to get every troops, uh, every troop that they can there. This was a short enlistment regiment, and their enlistment had run out. Uh, and they had never been in combat. They had never done anything but garrison D.C., but they were entitled to go home. And essentially, they said to them, you know, we need someone to watch the gate, you know, while we send the, the actual troops out there to fight the, the Rebs down in, in Pennsylvania. If you stay for an extra, you know, five days, we'll give you we'll all give a medal. We'll give you a medal of honor. And that was like three. And, and we'll give you and another chunk was the people they, they gave the medal to everybody who accompanied Lincoln's funeral procession. 
And, and you know, clearly those did not meet the idea of what a medal should be. I mean, there are a lot of medals of honor given in the Civil War that you, you wouldn't have gotten a medal of honor for that today. They didn't have the whole system that we have today. But I mean, those were ones that should never have been given. Yeah. But so we, we came up with the rules yeah. and you're, you're, you're protecting and the integrity. And it took away Mary Edward Walker's medal, but it also took away uh, uh, Bill Cody's medal because because the, the Indian scouts that had gotten these medals that were not actual in the army. And that yeah. was one of the requirements of the medal. If you honestly look at it, she didn't do any sort of act that no. would that would generally earn a medal no. of honor. I mean, she's essentially earning a medal of honor because of the things we talked about before. She did things yeah. even though they didn't, weren't going to let her. And, and this was this is kind of the, you know, we can't pay you back in the way that you should have been. But yeah. if, she, if she had been a male surgeon and had done the same thing, had gone behind the lines or whatever, wouldn't have gotten a medal of honor for that. I yeah. mean, it was, it was literally given a medal of honor because they couldn't give her a commission in the Army Medical Corps. It's not to say that she didn't deserve recognition. Well, she's an amazing person. I mean, no yeah. matter how else you put it, she deserves to be remembered. I mean, she really does. She was an extraordinary person who did extraordinary things in the face of extraordinary odds. She was always brave, and she always just stood up for what she believed in, even when society told her not to. And that is all a good story. From from yeah. beginning to end, she's a good story. Uh, and I, I think she was certainly heroic, uh, even if, you know, you not heroic in the way that you would typically give that yeah. medal for. And she's, well, and she'd be, deserved to be remembered whether or not she got the medal, to be honest, is it was her actions. And that's, that's why, you know, when, when it was, when the, the medals were all given back to her and Cody and the, and the Indian Scouts and stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, we're always trying to correct that record. We're, we're working on that quite a lot, uh, you know, today. Uh, that was to recognize that, yeah, this is someone who deserves to be remembered. And, and uh, I, you know, I agree. I mean, you could, uh, you know, there are people who might disagree with me. And certainly if you, if you get a Medal of Honor today, you've done something much more brave and self-sacrificing. Uh, but I, you know, I think uh, that uh, the, the medal recognizes something that deserves to be recognized. And, and that's why we, we did the show on her. Kind of separate from her from her war stuff, she was clearly, she held some very strong opinions. And unlike a lot of people of the day, uh, she was not going to be quiet about it, <laughs> no yeah. matter who was standing up against yeah. her. I mean, there's, she, so, I mean, one of her causes was making sure there was recognition for all these women who had served in nurses, as yeah. nurses during the war. One of her causes was to, uh, there were women that were coming to D.C. because a, a, a relative had been wounded and they were in the hospitals in the D.C. area, and those women didn't have a safe place to stay, and a lot of them were being victimized. And one of her causes was to make sure that if you were a sister of some soldier that was wounded and came to D.C., that you had a safe place to stay. I mean, those are those are great causes, uh, yeah. and and uh, she was she was an abolitionist. She was uh, a suffragette, uh, and uh, but she also she was a, a powerful advocate for dress reform. And so she she always yeah. argued that women's dress at the time was unhealthy. It was expensive. It didn't make sense that women should be able to dress as they please. Uh, and so I mean, if you might, you, you know, it's it's kind of hard to imagine how someone had to write fight hard for the right for a woman to wear yeah. pants. She was actually arrested for wearing men's clothing. Uh, and so uh, that's that's a that's a cause you wouldn't even think about today. No. Uh, that you know, it wasn't just that women were fighting for the vote or that women were uh, opposing alcohol because men were abusive when they were in alcohol. All these causes that we see the women of the year going. I mean, she was she was just arguing straight up for you know you shouldn't have to wear a dress if you're you know working on a farm, and that's that's you know that's that's a cause. It's it's hard to know. I guess I, I would have to do more research to know exactly how much of a difference she made on those causes, like in terms of getting them moved forward. But certainly, she was well ahead of her time. There were not a lot of people arguing well, against she, that. She she was called to testify before Congress. I mean, so she yeah. she certainly was a leading voice in in those, and she testified before Congress, wearing a suit and a top hat and wearing the medal that had been taken away. 
I I so mean that's she, that's good. She never she never gave up. She uh, she and so you have to think that she had some effect. And again, it yeah. just comes down to she deserved to be remembered. I would love to have met Marietta Walker and and see you know if she was soft spoken or if she was the firebrand that she seems to be. And that there's not a lot really. Uh, it's sad when you go. To, there's not a lot really about her personality. You get very yeah. little that talks about her as a, as an actual individual. You get more about you know, uh, you know what she was doing. Uh, and I think it would be interesting to see what she was as a personality. But I mean, if you think about that today, you know, today a woman can become a doctor uh, and a woman can get a good practice as a doctor. Uh, and, uh, you know, so would she, would she today, if she would have gone to medical school and just gotten a regular practice, would she have ended up being the woman that she ended up being? I just, I don't know. Right. I mean, part of Hard it was, to know. You know, the circumstances, what makes makes it happen. So, so I, I, that was a fun episode to do. She's an incredible person. She's someone that everybody should know. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, she, she deserves some kind of medal. Uh, even though we see that metal so completely different today. Yeah. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and we'd like to thank them for continuing to make this podcast possible. And now we're going to do a segment that we regularly do. Uh, what have you been watching on Magellan TV lately? I, You know, I, there's always so much to watch on Magellan. I was watching a nature documentary that just kind of stumbled. You know I have a house full of cats. Uh, and so I was, I was, there's a bunch of documentaries on Magellan about tigers. And, and it's funny because I have little tigers in my home. Uh, and there's this one, it's called Indian Tiger, India Tiger. And the, it's, there's a mother tiger and she's got two cubs and they're on this Indian preserve. And they're trying to figure out which of the cubs is actually going to end up being the, you know, the, the, the one that grows up to be kind of the ruler of the preserve. You're through the whole thing rooting for these two cubs and, or which one's going to be the, you know, the queen. It's really an interesting story. We did an episode on, on killer tigers and on the leopard of root prag and some of the killer tigers and stuff. And they're, they're very interesting creatures. Uh, and uh, they are so, when you watch them, they are so just really big house cats. I mean, mo- more so, I think, than lions is that if you really watch tigers and how they behave, I'm like, that's my cat is doing that right now. And if my cat was that large, she would probably eat me. I've really enjoyed it. And you end up really, it's in the end, it's just kind of a, it's almost like a contest. And it's very much worth your time. One of the things I love about Magellan is that, you know, it's not just history documentaries. There's, there's these nature documentaries, there's science documentaries, there's true crime. There's anything you want to watch that comes on Magellan TV. Truly an endless collection. Well, it's like more than 3,000 documentaries. I don't have time to watch 3,000 yeah. documentaries. So I, I don't know. I, I'll never watch them. They produce more new ones than I can keep up with. And so it's a, it's a, always a catalog that says always something great to watch. And they're always high quality. I haven't run across one that I'm like, oh, well, I wish this could be. Largely the filmmakers are the ones that own the channel. And that's yeah. and that means that they're going to put out good quality it's stuff. It's amazing. So, and, of course, you've got you've got a lot of technology these days you know, that didn't necessarily have when I was growing up in terms of the documentary. So that uh, there's uh, you know astounding visual graphics and, and, yeah. and that sort of oh, it's, It just makes for, yeah, they're just they're fantastic. Uh, if you are a fan of the history guy, you'll, you'll most likely be a fan of the John TV. What I was watching recently was was a World War II one. I felt like I had been watching a lot of uh, animal ones, and so I was like, mm, well, I'll go back to, to wars. And what this one, it was part of a series that they are called the Battlefields of the World Wars. And so they've got a couple of World War One ones and some World War II ones, and they're they're really pretty interesting. But the one I the one I watched was on the Battle of the Alps uh, in 1940, and I think it's something that does not get talked about a lot. The Italians. Uh, attempted to invade uh, France, southern France, through the Alps, mm-hmm. uh, while the Germans were running around in northern France. And while pretty much the whole French army was collapsing and the French government was collapsing, the French soldiers in the Alps, and even on the French side of the Alps, because they fought some Germans there too, held their ground. They held the Italians off, and they were able to even hold off attacks by Germans up until the surrender date. 
And they are mm-hmm. given kind of some credit for keeping some chunk of that, you know, the the part of it that was Vichy France from being um, occupied because they were they were still there fighting and defending. Yeah, I mean, Mussolini was really trying to decide if he was going to enter the war. Uh, and he really jumped in because he saw the Germans getting such success that he, he figured he had to get some success now or he wasn't going to be able to be a full partner in the war. That You're right. It's a battle. It's a part of the war that is completely forgotten. It's a great piece. And it sounds like an absolute thought. I'll have to go watch that one. And as always, we have a deal for fans of the History Guy. If you go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, you're going to get a special deal for signing up to Magellan TV. And whether that's a free month or a deal off an annual membership, it's really worth the small monthly price that you have to pay to learn about new things just like you do on the History Guy. Next, the History Guy is going to tell the story of Thomas Ward Custer, a man who won two medals of honor and was still forgotten because of his more famous brother. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us talk a little more with the History Guy. I want you to imagine a military career. A young man so intent on serving the Union during the Civil War that he lied about his age and enlisted at just the age of 16. A young man who, as a private, served in the center of the line in the deadliest major battle of the Civil War. A young man who, over the course of the war, rose in rank, enlisted as a private, and by the end of the war was a brevet major. A young man who, through acts of exceptional heroism, was awarded not one, but two medals of honor. The first soldier in the United States Army to be so honored. You would think that such a soldier would be famous, might be one of the most famous soldiers of the Civil War, and yet there was such a soldier, and his name is barely remembered for a very simple reason. It was overshadowed by the name of his much more famous older brother. And that is too bad, because the military career of Thomas Ward Custer deserves to be remembered. Emmanuel Custer and Maria Ward Kirkpatrick from rural Ohio had seven children together, but the first two died in infancy. Thomas Custer, born in 1845, was the third boy to survive infancy, after his older brother Nevin, born in 1842, and his oldest brother, George Armstrong Custer, born in 1839. A younger brother, Boston, and a sister, Margaret, would be born later. George Custer, who the family called Autie over his first attempts to pronounce his middle name when he was a toddler, was a charismatic, handsome, and athletic boy, and he set his mind on a career in the military. He secured an appointment to West Point and graduated as an officer in the U.S. Army in 1861, just a few months after the first shots of the Civil War. Well, naturally, the brothers, who all looked up to George, who was the leader of the pack, all wanted to follow him into the service. Nevin tried, he enlisted, but he had an ill-timed bout of rheumatism and was mustered out after only a couple of weeks. And Thomas, the next oldest, was just 16, two years too young to sign up for the army. But that didn't stop him from trying. He tried, he was refused due to his age. He tried again and lied about his age, and in September of 1861 was mustered in as a private in Company H of the 21st Ohio Volunteer Infantry. The 21st Ohio was part of the 45,000-strong Union Army of the Cumberland, under the command of Major General William Rosecrans. In December 1862, they faced the Confederate Army of Tennessee, commanded by General Braxton Bragg, in front of the Tennessee town of Murfreesboro, along a freezing narrow waterway known as Stones River. 
Seventeen-year-old Private Tom Custer and the boys of the 21st Ohio were smack in the middle of the line. For three days, Bragg threw his army at Rosecrans. The Union lines were thrown back. They bent, but they did not break. In two massive attacks, Bragg was unable to dislodge Rosecrans. Realizing that Rosecrans would continue to get reinforcements, Bragg withdrew. The battle was a tactical draw, but the Union held the ground, and the Confederacy lost the hope of controlling Central Tennessee, a critical event in the campaign in the West. Of the 76,400 soldiers who participated in the battle on both sides, 24,645 were killed or wounded. It was, proportionally, the highest casualty rate of any major battle of the Civil War. The 21st Ohio, who captured an artillery battery in a counterattack, took 159 casualties. After the Battle of Stones River, Tom managed to secure a position as an orderly for a succession of brigade and division commanders until he was eventually on the staff of General Ulysses S. Grant and promoted to the rank of corporal. It was in that role that he saw some of the most vicious battles in the West, including Missionary Ridge and Chickamauga. But in October of 1864, Otty, who was by then a brigadier general of cavalry, managed to secure Tom a commission as a lieutenant in the 6th Michigan Cavalry in a position as his brother's aide-de-camp. The final phase of the U.S. Civil War occurred in the spring of 1865, when the forces of Ulysses S. Grant finally broke through Robert E. Lee's defense works and ended the 10-month siege of Petersburg. But Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia managed to escape, and Lee realized that his only hope of continuing the war was to reach North Carolina and join up with the Confederate Army there under the command of General Joseph Johnston. Grant knew that if he could prevent Lee from getting to North Carolina, he could end the war. The Appomattox Campaign was a series of running battles between Grant's advance forces and Lee's rear guard, and Custer's cavalry was in the thick of the fight. Time and again, Thomas distinguished himself in the chase. He was given brevet promotions. A brevet rank can mean a couple of things, but in Tom Custer's case, it meant a warrant giving a commissioned officer a higher rank title as a reward for gallantry or meritorious conduct, but without conferring the authority, precedence, or pay of a real rank. Such promotions were common during the Civil War. Tom was a brevet major by April. He had a horse shout out from under him at the Battle of Five Forks on April 1st. On April 3rd, Custer's cavalry engaged three regiments of Confederate cavalry near a place called Namazine Church. It was part of Lee's rear guard, and in a short, sharp action between cavalry units, Tom led the charge. He jumped over a hastily built Confederate breastwork and there captured three Confederate officers, 11 Confederate soldiers, and the battle flag of the 2nd North Carolina Cavalry. For his gallant action that day, Tom Custer was awarded the Medal of Honor. The decisive battle of the Appomattox Campaign came just three days later, on a hill in front of a little creek that was called Sailor's Creek. Grant had finally caught up to Lee, and two of Lee's three corps were forced to engage in the desperate action at the Battle of Sailor's Creek. The Army of Northern Virginia was literally fighting for its very life, and in the brutal combat, when the Union Infantry could not force the Rebs to break. The cavalry was ordered to charge. 
Tom Custer was the first cavalryman to get across the second line of Confederate breastworks, where he grabbed a hold of yet another Confederate battle flag. But the flag bearer drew his pistol and shot Tom Custer point blank in the face, so close that it caused powder burns. The bullet entered under his cheek, skimmed along his skull, and exited behind his right ear. And Tom Custer, in one motion, still hanging onto the flag, drew his pistol and killed the flag bearer. His face bleeding profusely, he triumphantly rode back with the battle flag of the 2nd Virginia Reserve Battalion. He rode up to his brother and proudly proclaimed, Armstrong, the damned Rebs have shot me, but I got my flag. He tried to return to the fight. His brother had to have him forcibly restrained to be taken to the surgeons to treat his wound. Astoundingly, Tom Custer had captured his second Confederate battle flag and earned his second Medal of Honor in a period of just four days. He was the first soldier in U.S. history, and one of only a handful, to receive two Medals of Honor. The desperate, brutal Battle of Sailor's Creek was the death blow of the Confederacy. Lee lost more than 8,000 soldiers killed or wounded. Lee surrendered to Grant three days later. After the war, Tom Custer stayed in the Army. He had the regular rank of lieutenant, but the brevet rank of lieutenant colonel. Awfully good for someone who signed up as a private. He followed his brother's career in the West and the Indian Wars, and was with his brother on the Black Hills Expedition in 1874 that discovered gold. And he was with his brother on that fateful day, June 25th of 1876, when the 7th Cavalry faced off against a force of Sioux and Cheyenne warriors in what has become known as the Battle of the Little Bighorn. After the battle, Tom's body was found a few feet away from that of his more famous brother. Nearby was the body of his younger brother, Boston. Also on the battlefield was the body of his brother-in-law, James Calhoun, husband of his sister Margaret, and the body of their nephew, Henry Armstrong Reed, who had accompanied his uncle's expedition as a civilian and was just 18 years old. That iconic battle was a bad day for the Custer family. Tom's remains were removed to the Cavalry Cemetery at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and the stone can still be seen there today. Thomas Custer was a brilliant soldier, but he lived his life in his brother's shadow. George Armstrong Custer was a larger-than-life personality and a bold and gifted commander of cavalry. But in 1865, when he was asked about his brother, in a moment of honesty, he said, Do you want to know what I think of him? Tom should have been the general and I the lieutenant. Thomas Ward Custer, a hero of the Union, was an extraordinary soldier who deserves to be remembered. Tom Custer's life is is amazing. I mean, just like, I think just, <laughs> just like anyone who's really earned a Medal of Honor, they, and in this case, you know, he did something during the Civil War. We talked about how Mary Edwards Walker, how we didn't really have the rules for how to do Medals of Honor. But what Tom Custer did is very much the kind of thing that we would award a Medal of Honor for today. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, today, the standard, I mean, because today we have a whole yeah. system. So what do you have gotten? A bronze star? A oh, that's star, fair. Or, or, I mean, there's there's a whole there's a whole system. Goes up to, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's no real version of capturing the flag today. Uh, what we can say about Tom Custer's medals, because, you know, he, he yeah. two medals in four days, is that in the Civil War, almost all the time, if you captured an enemy standard, you received the Medal of Honor. Even for people who literally picked one wow. up off the battlefield, like the guy was dead and they picked it up. And so in both these cases, 
Tom, through absurd acts of bravery, charged in and grabbed their colors. I mean, one of the cases, he rode up to the guy. The guy put his pistol up to Tom's face and pulled the trigger. It went, the bullet went across the, instead of going through his face, it went it went under the skin, went around the skull, came out the back behind his ear. Uh, Good and heavens. He, <laughs> the guy had to be awfully surprised when Tom shot him dead. I think most people get shot in the face. <laughs> they turn around. Yeah, you think that's, yeah, you're going to stop, you know, at that point. So, I mean, it should have been fatal, and it just happened to be that the bullet, instead of, you know, going you know, through his brain, it skidded around the outside of his skull. Uh, and it's it's funny because apparently Tom was so, he was so caught up in the battle, he didn't even recognize his wound. I mean, like, for God's sake, bandage your face. He was face, ready to go back. You know, uh, so he, I mean, they were certainly acts of bravery, and they were unquestionably acts of bravery that individually would have been given medals of honor to anybody, regardless. I mean, they didn't have to be a general son. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that the two of them happened in four days, and of course, it's in the Appomattox campaign. So we're running to the point where the, the uh, Lee's army is desperate. I mean, but they were both they were both very powerful yeah. acts of bravery. Uh, and you know, I don't know if there's an equivalent today. And I don't know if you had equivalent. I mean, the medals of honor that go today are very often for someone who is really risking themselves That's to true. save other lives. Uh, you know, I don't know that he meets necessarily the same standard of all the medals of honor that were awarded or not awarded in the world wars, but he is absolutely consistent with how the medal of honor was awarded in the civil war. And he, he definitely deserved those two medals. You know, once we're in the, the middle of the the 19th century where the civil war was fought, that, that was kind of getting toward the end of the whole, the whole battle standard thing. Cause I mean, that was a, that was a, mm-hmm. I mean, a tradition that went back as, you know, the Romans were capturing, yes. capturing a, a Roman battle standard was a real big deal. That's right. And in the Napoleonic Wars, yeah. that was you know very important because the units rallied around a standard. And uh, there's a point actually, and there's, there's it's interesting. There's a point in the in the British Army where they stopped carrying colors into combat because it was so embarrassing when you lost the colors. And so they had uh, Isetlawana, where the colors of the 24th were yeah. lost. Uh, and then they had another one. I think it was the Battle of Malakand in uh, in India, and they lost colors. And it occurred like in a two year period. And they said they would stop carrying colors into combat. And you're talking in the you know, late part of the yeah. 19th century. So yeah, it's 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 at a point where the colors are extremely important, and defending the colors is extremely important, and we're really at the end of that era. Uh, but it's still it still meant a lot in the in the Civil War. It still meant, I mean, that that could demoralize an entire unit, and their best people were going to be fighting to the death. For it's it's colors. interesting because it, it was nothing more than a symbol, really. But it was, I mean, when you look at it, when you look at this battle, losing it, you know, the fact that they were willing to be so reckless to get the battle standard, which may or may, I mean, you have to say that there were probably people who died doing things that were otherwise unnecessary in combat, specifically just to get the standard. And I think it's hard for us to try to do it's hard for us to understand today. I mean, you know, when we've war has really uh, it's it's not that it was a was a game. I think that's probably an insult to them. But this idea that, you know, that this this one symbol is is so important that we could we could prioritize that over other considerations i think yeah. that that's hard for us to get yeah these you're days. playing more you're playing more like yeah. chess there like you're capturing you know like you're capturing a yeah. rook or something when you know and, and uh, you know what does it mean to the but it was thing? important but i mean in these cases it was i mean in well in every case in the civil war if your unit lost its its standard you know that would that would very likely break yeah. the unit in that battle and because that was that was what your unit you know was rallying around it was what stood for your unit it was yeah. a matter of extreme pride uh, and it was also that was where the commander was the units it, the units falling apart your morale is is crushed and so and and to some extent that was mm-hmm. real because if they get to the flag i mean and and civil war battles turned yeah. that way i mean entire regiments were i mean they were fighting and then they worked and, and something could shift that. So there's a reason 
that uh, the Medal of Honor was, and aside from the fact that there was just no other medal uh, associated with the Army to give, the reason that, that had to do with Winfield Scott. Winfield Scott didn't believe in medals because he thought it was too European. Uh, and of course, Winfield Scott had been, he had been, you know, the chief of the army for you know, 20 yeah. years prior to the Civil War. Old Fuss and Feathers. Old Fuss and Feathers. He's an amazing guy. I want to do an yeah. episode on him sometime because you were talking to a guy that was an officer uh, in the War of 1812. Yeah. That was still an officer in the Civil War. He was, but, he was maybe a he was little never, past his prime. he didn't like medals. By the time he got to the Civil War. He was, but... They said he would fall asleep in the middle of sentences and stuff like that. He was chief of the army. He would be Still, though, impressive, right? That's a long sense. career. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he developed, in the end, his strategy was the strategy that ended up winning the Civil War. That's interesting. Most of the other younger generals thought that they could, were going to go defeat the, the Rebs in one yeah. single battle. And he's the one that understood the anaconda, the, the, the economic war of cutting them off. So he's, I, I got to talk about him at some point. But Old Fuss and Feathers was the reason we didn't have any medal system. Uh, the, purple, the Purple Heart had been actually authorized by Washington, but we didn't even have the Purple Heart authorized anymore. And hmm. it didn't have the same meaning that it, that it does today, the battle wound. And so really it was the, the and you know, the, it's really kind of funny how the Medal of Honors, I mean, the first Medal of Honor that was n not first by date of, of action, but first medal actually given where these guys that had gone in the great tra train chase. Huh. And that is these guys, they, they snuck behind the enemy lines and stole the Confederate train, and they were driving around, ripping up the rail behind themselves, and they were being chased the whole time. And some of them got away, and some of them were caught. Uh, and so they had ordered these medals. They didn't know what the role for the medals would be. They brought these medals in. Uh, uh, Stanton, yeah. Edwin Stanton, the, the Secretary of War, was there. And he's like, oh, hey, you know, he's shaking hands with these guys that had done the great trade chase. And he's like, oh, hey, you know what? I got, a, I got medals back here. <laughs> so he like, goes, opens the new box of newly minted medals and he hands them out. There was no active Congress to he's, decide, you know, if they earned the medals. He's just like, I happen that. to have medals and you did some great stuff. It just seemed like the thing to do. And, and, and interestingly, because of the way that the medal was authorized, that, that the first by date of service predates the Civil War. We did do an episode on that. I mean, the Medal of Honor is really interesting to talk about at the time because we just didn't know how we were going to do things. And Tom Custer is really interesting, that the fact that he, that he got two medals uh, so quickly, so quickly together. And he's an interesting guy. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have even been an officer if it weren't for his brother. Right. Uh, and uh, he, he was never, I mean, he how hard it must have been to negotiate with a unit to say that you're going to take one of your positions, uh, you, you know, one of the, one of the ranks that you have assigned to your unit. And you know, that person's never going to serve in your unit. You know, immediately they're going to be assigned to a general staff and you're never going to see them. Uh, and then he kept getting breveted up because he was kept doing brave things. after <laughs> things. But I mean, and imagine that Appomattox campaign. I mean, Lee's retreating. He's trying to get to Beauregard and the war looks like it's at its end. And everybody is trying to, you know, trying to push for that. So, Tom, Tom Custer, I mean, I, he's another one. I would love to have talked to Mary Edward Walker and see what she's really like. But Tom Custer, I would really like to have, you know, seen what he was like in battle and see if this, it sounds almost like he was like a berserker, you know? Yeah. And, uh, 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 that, that level of bravery, yeah. It's difficult to know exactly where, uh, from, from the sources that we have, you know, was he... Was he just a crazy, reckless young man? Because, <laughs> I mean, to some extent, I think some of the bravery, I mean, a lot of the stuff that gets earned Medal of Honors, you're deliberately putting yourself in danger. And that might, you could, you may be able to call that reckless, but the whole point is that you're doing that for, uh, for somebody else. I mean, the, the point is that you're yeah, in danger. Was, I mean, or was he, was he yeah. ambitious? Was, I mean, because he was getting these promotions for these, for these acts. Uh, I think, you know, I think he actually was someone who was just straight up caught in the heat of battle. And wanted to to make a difference, but uh, you know, I don't know. It would be interesting to find out. Yeah, I mean, he was he was uh, well respected uh, when he was off fighting. Then later in the in the Indian Wars, terrible fighters. As someone who was just you know fearless and fierce, uh, and uh, and because of that, actually uh, at Custer Battlefield, his body was particularly mutilated. 
because he was seen as being so such a powerful And they warrior. were able to recognize that. He's an interesting guy. Custer Battlefield's so interesting anyway. I mean, if they, there's, there's, you know, could it be the Battle of Greasy Grass without a little bighorn? It's great to call it Custer Battlefield because there were, what, five Custers there that, yeah. that you know, died. Uh, and uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting story all around. Uh, but he's, uh, it, it's just, at least it's, a, it's an exciting story because we, almost everybody in America knows who George Custer was. Yeah. I mean, they remember that name. Uh, I, I think far less known that he even had a brother, more or less that his brother was the recipient of two medals of honor. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I said, at least some might know that yeah, he died right there on, on Last Stand Hill with, with George. But uh, uh, he's, I mean, he's just, he's again, however you want to put it, whether he was crazy, whether he was brave, whether he was, you know, just preserved or whatever you want to say about him, he deserves to be remembered. Yeah. He is, he is was certainly a character. And, and and someone who, you know, who lived in the shadow of a, of a brother who was more famous. So it's, it's really interesting that at the end that George, who was a guy, I mean, George Custer was not someone who was uh, who was given to modesty, I think. Yeah. You say. Uh, and yet in the end, when he talked about his brother, I mean, he was in awe of his younger brother and what his younger brother did. Yeah, it's you had mentioned, you know. Um, that he he wouldn't have even you know served and been able to do a lot of this stuff if not for his brother. And it makes me wonder a little bit. I mean, was he always going to be overshadowed by his brother, even if he had served with somebody else? Because you wonder, you know, if he if he had been able to make a bigger name for himself serving with someone else. But on the other hand, I think he owes what he was able to do. Yeah, I don't. Who else is going to put him? I mean, he was a quarter, a, a corporal, sorry, and an orderly. Who else is going to you know promote him to lieutenant and put him on their yeah. staff? Yeah, it is interesting because George went to West Point prior to the war, uh, and uh, Tom didn't get that chance because the war started, and he went enlisted, you know, as a young man, and, and went and fought in, in you know some terrible battles. Stunts were, yeah. oh my gosh. So I mean, he, you know, it's hard to say that if the situation had been different, would Tom had gone to West Point? Would he? Uh, could he have gone to West Point? Could he have been an officer in the same way that his brother was? And of course, you know, George Custer. There's reasons that people remember his name, good and bad. But I mean, he was he was an extraordinary officer in many ways, and everybody acknowledges that. So it's hard to say because they were just in a different yeah. situation. George Custer got to be a general because he entered the army at a very different time, and Tom Custer got to be, I think, eventually a brother major uh, because his brother had gone to West Point. Uh, and but I mean they both had come in in different situations. Yeah. Uh, but I he, I think he was always going to be overshadowed by his brother, and especially given the the role that would come later. I mean Custer's you know, role in the in the West yeah. uh, meant that his name was was well known. I mean that you know the, the disaster at Custer Battlefield was was well known throughout the nation, and that's one of the reasons yeah. he's so famous. Uh, and I think that that was always going to overshadow you know someone who was really known for individual bravery like the Tom yeah. Custer. Was. Custer's reputation I think has has gone different ways. And I, I think his association with the, the Indian Wars mm -hmm. has, in in general, in the modern world, uh, hurt his reputation. And certainly, I mean, he played roles in that that were... There's a lot of negative about yeah. those wars and what they mean. And we talk about that in, in historical context. And I, you know, I don't know that any particular way you tie that to Tom Custer. He was out there. Yeah. He was out there well, and that's, I mean, you'd say that a lot about, uh, well, I mean, George had his other things too, but yeah, George was only a cog in a, in a much larger machine. And it wasn't yeah. like he was driving all of the uh, feelings and the pressures. And, you know, there's lots of questions about his, his yeah. choice making at that battle and, and, you know, that led to a disaster. And, uh, you know, he was, he was originally supposed to wait for two infantry columns. Neither one of them was coming. He still attacked. Uh, he had, uh, you know, he it followed very much the way he had fought in the Civil War, and you know, ended up badly for him. And 
and you know two brothers and a brother-in-law and a, and a, and a nephew. It is. Uh, so, it's it's yeah. interesting because I think that you know the customer in general gets you know a lot of negative stuff, but it's interesting to think about Little Bighorn as a, as kind of a family tragedy too. And I think that's a piece of yeah, a large piece yeah. of history that that sometimes gets and passed that's, over. It's part of the fun of the Thomas Ward Custer episode is to talk some yeah. about Custer family. I got to talk a little bit about. Uh, uh, you know, the whole family and how they came together and, and what happened at, uh, and matter of fact, this, that episode came out in two versions. The first version I talked about Tom, the second version I added, I, I think like two minutes into that episode to talk about the Custer family and the ones that had died at, at, yeah. at the battle. And, uh, it's, it's a really an interesting family. And there are people, I mean, I have a, a dear friend, uh, Father Vince Heyer. Hey, hey, Vince, if you're, <laughs> if you're listening, uh, who's, I mean, he's, he's as Custer a guy as you'll get, as Custer an expert as you get. And, and, and there are people who are just fascinated with this man and his family because they were, they were really part of the yeah. era uh, and you know good or ill whatever you want to say about them i mean they were really part of the era so this this was a, a fun episode to do because i think it took people beyond what they usually know about the custers which is really only to know about the old yellow yeah. hair you know and i think that's i think it's important and it's not just they they had roles to play in history and were people too and i i think that that's the kind of stuff that we really want to be able to examine from as many perspectives as possible in history Absolutely. And like I said, at the beginning of that episode, if Tom Custer's name had been anything but Custer and he'd done the same things he did, you'd yeah. know his name. And you, the reason you don't know his name is because his last name was Custer and there was a more famous Custer at yeah. the same time. <laughs> Who even was even overshadowing him in his death, even though they died at the same spot. Even in his death, five, yeah. Like five feet yeah, away from each other. Might literally have been in his yeah. shadow. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's different theories, but one of the theories might be, one of the theories is, and I don't want to, one of the theories is that Custer, George Custer was wounded. He died with a shot to the temple. And one of the theories is that that, that Tom might have been the one that put Custer because they didn't want him to be captured. Huh. That Tom might have been the one that killed his brother. Uh, and that's an interesting. I don't. You know, there's the there's the another interesting. Someone was asking me the other day. The another interesting theory is that they were all buried in a mass grave. They decided that they were going to reinter George Custer at West Point, and they weren't really sure which which body was his. And the one that they found that they thought was his was actually where the corporal's taken. Huh. And if you the actual the the note at the time says, well, we think we got the right one. And some genetic evidence since at least suggests that uh, it, it, it might have gotten the wrong guy, or at least they didn't get all of him. So probably some of George Custer is still buried there in Montana. It gets pretty difficult to be like 100 percent sure uh, when once you've buried them for a yeah. while and then you try to go back. Yeah, that's a... <laughs> yeah, and, and, and in a pile in a pile of mass grave. So it's because someone said 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 somewhere, you know, Custer's buried at West Point. I'm like, you know. Maybe. <laughs> He's, <laughs> or there might be a, a, an unnamed corporal yes, buried we, at West Point, or there might be parts of both. At, of at the very least, we tried. No, we no. tried to bury him at West yes, Point. There, there is a grave at West Point that has his name on it, and that's uh, of course Tom was also he was he's buried in Kansas at the at the, uh, at the cavalry uh, headquarters there in Kansas, and you can still go see his gravestone too. Uh, but you know, I, I wonder if it's the same question if they really did identify, you know, for sure. Especially when you're just doing it by sight at that point, you're like, oh yeah, I'm pretty sure this is him. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't. These but these buttons look roughly right. This must be that, right? Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed these stories of forgotten history, and if you did, you can find more on our YouTube channel at the History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. We will continue to release podcasts every other week, so stick around if you want more podcasts on forgotten history. You can also find us on our website, thehistoryguy.net, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Rumble, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.